0: Here is your host, Derek Terry. Thanks for tuning in, fine listeners of Astro Radio Z. I'm Derek, as always. And finally, you've heard his voice before on my show. La, la, la. <laughs> Once. I, I believe it, the only time you've come on the show was for that Witchcraft episode. Yes. Yeah. I think so. So the voice you're hearing right now is my dear friend and uh, cohort in many film projects, Mr. Jason Ball Collum. Say hi to my listeners, Jason. Hello, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> so we were just talking because obviously we've been involved with in many projects together. And we still are planning on making further content. I mean, the last thing we did together was... Uh, Shy no, uh, no, it was safe inside, safe inside the movie that still has not been released. Right, supposedly later this year. Shot in 2012.
1: <laughs> yes, in five days. Five,
0: five days. Five well, days. six days if you, pick, you count that pickup.
1: There wasn't. It was a picture of a picture.
0: <laughs> That's all. I thought it <laughs> was like no a pick-ups. half day.
1: Nope. Nope. No pickups. This is the only movie I've ever shot where we didn't have to come back, and the only thing I had to do was take a photograph of my refrigerator. That was it. Oh, that's right. That was the ice. The ice. Which, you know, obviously, your listeners aren't going to know what I'm talking about. They have yet. no idea.
0: Well, they'll and eventually... You
1: probably won't even pick it up inside of the... When you watch the film itself. Um, but we shot this thing in five days, and um, they were like 15-hour days, 17-hour days.
0: Really long days. Right.
1: But we didn't have to do... Everything fell into place. We didn't have to do any actual pickups where we had to call actors back or anything.
0: Well, that's because we did 20-hour days. Right. Right. During the hottest our days of day, that, that
1: year. Our final day of shooting, we sta- We began shooting at like 7 o'clock in the
0: morning, and we finished at 4.30 in the morning. It was a rough one, but yeah. we pulled it off. I remember so, those first couple days on that shoot, uh, Gibbs and I were only sleeping like a couple hours. Mm-hmm. Everybody was sleeping a couple of hours.
1: Poor Chris Harder, who was the lead in Safe Inside, it um, was you could see the actual physical exhaustion because he had to get up the next morning. So he first fell asleep at 5 a.m. Yeah. Because we wrapped at, like, 4.45
0: a.m. Yeah. He went to bed at 5
1: a.m. and had to be up at 6 a.m. to travel out of town.
0: Well, he also was literally in the vast majority of the scenes of the movie. Yeah, he's in, like, well, 90% of the movie because the movie's about him. Right. Yeah, poor guy. I put him through hell. Well, you've... This isn't the first time he's been through hell. He's been in many of your movies. He's been in many of my
1: movies. I love to torture my actors. Um, <laughs> he was in. He started with me in Five Dark Souls, and then Five Dark Souls Part 2, and then Five Dark Souls Part 3, and then he went and he started getting real jobs out in Portland. Yeah. So he's been in Portland, and now he's been in um, quite a few movies that people know and TV shows. He was in Leverage, and he was on Grimm. Um, oh, wow, I didn't know that. Yep, and he was in... Um, Extraordinary measures with Harrison Ford, and he was in. Oh, it's a Gus Van Sant movie, and it's not like little bit parts either. He's like legit, like
0: actual parts. Like he has multiple supporting scenes, roles.
1: Yeah, supporting roles in these films. So it's really cool that somebody that I went to college with, because that's how we met to begin. Yeah. Um. And then I, I he made his film debut, I, I believe, with Five Dark Souls. You know, this little shot on video. Thing that still follows me twenty plus years later <laughs> that um, we revisited that we revisit, <laughs> revisited. We did. We made it much better. Um, that he's that somebody has actually gone on from that and, sure. and has a legit career. You
0: know, so well. That's well. He's talented. That's why he is very talented. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, let's go. Let's go ahead and tell the listeners about who you are. How did you like? You obviously you've been involved and had a love for. Um, horror films, the vast majority of your life. How'd you get started to wanting to make your own films at all?
1: I remember very specifically um, sitting in my bedroom. I was 15 years old. I had been a horror fan for about three years because it started around age 12. And I was watching Friday the 13th, the original. Mm -hmm. And the end credits were rolling. And I knew, I had seen the film so many times that I knew like who the caterer was. I knew who like the... The drivers were you know and I'm watching the names go up the end credits and I just said to myself I want to see my name in the end credits just one time in my life I just want to do that and that is that was the moment that I realized I wanted to somehow be involved in movies I wasn't quite sure yet My specific role Like did I want to be an actor Did I want to be a director And a writer It was already more writing Directing than acting
0: Yeah 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 Were you writing stories At that time Of your own or
1: No I mean I was writing Short stories Not film Not for film Just Mm -hmm. like I was writing Short stories of my own And then um, I'm going to say It must have been Right after that I wrote my first um, Screenplay Which was Friday the 13th Part 9 At the time because this would have been around nineteen eighty nine. Part eight had just come out. Okay. So I wrote a full script for part nine. Yeah. And I tried um to get it to into Paramount, of course. Nothing ever came of it. It's still sitting in my closet and it introduced um Jason's father and it brought back all of the women who had been in the pre who had survived the previous film. Interesting. And, oh, I'm sure if I dug it out now, I'd be like, This is a pretty rockin' little script. It was supposed to bring back Corey Feldman and um Something so, that but, we all dreamed about, yes, yes. you know. Yes, I mean, it was like a fan script, right? you know. Um, again, it never made its way to Paramount. I submitted it to a couple different companies, and they were all like, thanks, but, you know, we really don't own the property, so.
0: Well, and they didn't want anything to do with those Friday films after. They Not didn't want point. anything to do with those films while they were being produced. Right. They, yeah,
1: they really didn't. But I was, I mean, I, so if you think about this, this is like 1989, 1990 when I did this, and I'm still a teenager, Um trying to figure out how you get your script seen. Right. So I guess I would say that that's fifteen sixteen is when it really kind of kick started. And then after that Friday script, I wrote Last House on the Left Part 2. And that actually came, if you could see my fingers right now, they're like half an inch apart. <laughs> it came this, this close to actually being sold. Who are you talking to about that? Um, I was talking to a gentleman named Phil Middleman at Kushner Lock, who owned the rights at the time. And um, they held on to it for six months. It was a back and forth. Like this was legit. They sent it off to Jonathan Craven, okay. who really liked the script. Apparently, now this is all what I'm told. I never spoke with Jonathan Craven, yeah. who was Wes Craven's son. Yeah. Um, but they were looking. They were considering it, and then they ultimately decided it was going to get an NC-17 because it's violent. It was. It what's was, the was, What's the plot of it? It was. Um, it kind of. Uh, it. It reversed the sex roles, so it was two it was a young man who had been abducted so it was it brought back the character of Weasel who had his dick bitten off in the original yeah thing. and he escapes from prison and he has this horrid wife or girlfriend mm-hmm. um that he's on the run with and I I would have to go back and remember the script because this is how like how does he exactly get a girlfriend when his dick bit off well Charles Manson had his been married offered to be married I suppose you know the, the, the guy that blew up Oklahoma City Timothy McVeigh he got marriage proposals. Yeah, I mean, so it's like, this was, you know, and this is kind of where I was pulling from, was like, this guy could have been the sitting The star-fucking
0: of serial uh, killers. Right, and, yeah, right. yeah, yeah.
1: So he gets out, and um, he somehow gets onto a college campus, and he ends up abducting a, a guy. So Weasel and his cohorts bring this guy out in the woods and torture the shit out of him, and then they take him to this house out in the middle of the woods, and it's just, it's really gruesome. And the kid... Um, there was a big gay slant to it because the kid was gay, so it was um, kind of October Moon-ish, which was a film that I did. For those who don't know, yeah. um, it, it, so there was the the kid was gay, and because he was gay, he was tortured for it, and that's something that had not been done mm-hmm. that, thus far. So far as I knew, you know, there were no horror movies out there where, uh, where uh, there was a lead gay character, and who was being tortured for that as for the way that he was. Sure. But ultimately, again, it, just, it was going to be an NC-17, and they said, we just we can't do it. Financially, we can't take the chance, because they would want to release it, theatrically, of course. Right. And they said there was no way this thing was going to get an R rating.
0: Well, is, was it also because at the time there really were no openly gay characters in a lot of films, especially horror?
1: Um, it could have been. They, that was never the subject that was brought up to me, to be honest. They never made comment about the gay character. They just kept talking about the script itself. Mm. Um, so, and I have no idea where Phil Middleman is today, and if he even remembers all of this. You know, he'd be like, what is this guy talking about? But I got, you know, the correspondence back and forth. When This was back with phone calls and mailed letter, like snail mail. Oh, wow. Because... Um, and were you no, here in
0: Wisconsin? I was here this? in Wisconsin.
1: I was going to school at the University of Wisconsin-Parkside down in Kenosha. So this was all correspondence back and forth to LA you know and again at this point so this was in 1992 and I would have been 18 or 19 oh wow at this point so um, so what ended up happening then was they ultimately said no we can't do it because of the finances so then I submitted it to this uh, production company in Virginia called MDM productions more video and said hey You know, would you guys be interested in producing this script? You'd have to buy the sequel rights from Kushner Locke.
0: Were the licensing Um, rights exorbitant, or were they pretty reasonable? I have no idea. I
1: have no idea. And I think, ultimately, they didn't... um, I don't know if MDM looked into the rights, but they just said, we can't afford the rights to do this. However, we still want to make this script, and we want to call it First House on the Right. And I was like... (laughs) Bah, wah, wah. I'm like, oh, oh, I don't know boy. how comfortable. <laughs> I don't know how comfortable I am with this. So we did not end up making it, but because of that script, they wound up hiring me to make Mark of the Devil six six six. So my first professional job, mm-hmm. and where and they gave me a. Minuscule budget. It was like under $500. Sure. And they sent me a camera to shoot the thing on. And I shot that in the summer of 94. Um, so my very first full length feature is Mark of the double six, which was a result of last house and left part two. Interesting. Yes. Now I had made some short movies before then with, um, through, um, just on my own. Yeah. So I started in the summer of 1990. um, I ripped off uh, an episode of the new Twilight Zone, which was called Dead Woman's Shoes, I think, where this woman... Somebody dies, somebody dies in a pair of shoes, and whoever puts the shoes on winds up being possessed by that person. Oh, okay. So I totally ripped it off, and I called my movie Dead Women Don't Wear Shoes. <laughs> <laughs> and it was... I think it was like 15 minutes, 10, 15 minutes long. Sure. And I, you look back at it, and I'm sure it's absolutely horrible... I haven't seen it in 20 years. What did you want to do with it? Like, you shot I, this thing. What, what, I sent it off to a couple of film festivals. I just wanted to make a movie. Sure. I really didn't want to, like, be this big director. And, and I mean, I say, when I say I sent it off to a couple of festivals, I think I sent it to, like, four
0: yeah. festivals.
1: I just wanted to make a movie. Yeah. I wanted to see my name in an end credit somewhere.
0: So you just grabbed a VHS camcorder or whatever yeah. you had and a yeah. couple friends and decided... The big, fat VHS tapes. We yeah. shot
1: it on that. I had a... Um, Wrote my my ten page script, and we shot it in the summer of 1990, and had a blast with it, you yeah. know. And um, uh, Karen DeLue, who has um, been in many of my movies since, was the lead in that because she was my best friend, you yeah. know, one of my best friends, and my other friend, one of my other best friends, Michelle Fredericks, um, kind of did additional stuff with me throughout the years you know so but so my first legit filmmaking as a director was dead women don't wear shoes <laughs> did
0: you did you find it hard to get people involved with doing this stuff or no, when you were that they age were everyone just gung. me. yeah
1: you know and th- so that was in between my junior and senior year of high school so when i went back in my in the fall of that year to for my senior year of high school um, i was taking an english class it was a writing class And we had to do some big paper at the end of the semester. So I approached my teacher and I said, instead of doing this paper, could I make a movie? And she said, "Um, sure. So I gathered my friends again and I did two. So I made, um, first I made Eternal Slumber, which was very Slumber Party Massacre-ish.
0: So it wasn't a fan film of Slumber Party Massacre? It no. Was, it, was, it, was,
1: it was, I mean, it's a group of group of high school kids who are having a slumber party, and somebody starts offing them. okay. Yeah, so it wasn't an actual Slumber Party Massacre movie, but very
0: blatantly inspired by it. Sure, sure, you know, sure. And did we, you find yourself writing a lot of stuff that was very inspired by oh, yeah. all the movies you were watching? Yeah. So, well, we
1: did Eternal Slumber, and then after that, then for my finale for the class... I did. Beware the kind stranger, which I can't believe. Both Eternal Slumber and Beware the Kind Stranger, I've never actually used those film titles. They're good, you know. Now, did you did you make anything? You made these films. I made these films, and then so and they were again. So Eternal Slumber was like 30 minutes long, and Beware the Kind Stranger was. Oh my God! it was Do a you disaster. still have these? Things? I do. I do. They're Are they VHS. on just like
0: a VHS? On the
1: VHS, house? I'll have to give them to you, and you can maybe. Oh yeah, them we need me. to do this. Okay, we need to do now, this now. Keep in mind. I could never make any money off of any of these movies right. because um, what I would do is on one shoulder, I would hold the camcorder, and on the other shoulder, I would hold the boombox with the horror music, horror movie <laughs> music. So you can't separate the two. The music so, so is the actually music,
0: playing. Was it music from movies? Yes,
1: from The Fog, from Halloween, from He Knows You're Alone, Happy Birthday to Me. Oh, wow. I mean, all the soundtracks from these movies are in my these little short films, But I, but because I'm... I'm stealing movie music, and again, it can't be separated because it's playing in the background while I'm filming. You're pulling a John Waters. Yes, absolutely. But interestingly, I actually used to be kind of halfway decent with editing around that because I would cut when there would be a lull in the music so that I knew that I could cut the two pieces of music together. Sure, sure. um, So that the viewer wouldn't necessarily notice the, breaks, the transition, the transition, between right, 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 the music. right, and I would then take my finished recordings, and I would go down into my bedroom with, and, and I had a VCR attached to a VCR, and that's how I edited. Ta-da!
0: That's old school,
1: man. That's really old school. That is nothing like the kids can do today. Oh, absolutely you know? not. Well, thankfully we don't have right, to do that right. anymore. So um, the only film that I did that I actually really tried to get into film festivals then, and was my last. Um, Feature that I did kind of like high school ish, college ish, was um, it was called Suck 'em Dry. <laughs> Which was not what it sounds like. <laughs> There's
0: no subtext there. No. Well... <laughs> was it a vampire
1: the film? The funny thing is, it was a vampire film, and I really did not even think about the fact that this was going to come off sounding like a porno. Mm-hmm. Did, did not cross my mind. In my mind, it was a vampire movie. I mean, it's by Suck 'em Dry, we yeah. were referring to sucking the blood dry. Not the other thing, <laughs> <laughs> but um, it, it, I think we actually got it into one film festival, don't even remember what the name of the thing was called. They played it, um, like where were these film festivals? Were they local, the like no, regional? It was, things? No, no, it was, it was around the country. It was so, it was like wherever I would, there was an old magazine called Independent Video, uh-huh. as I
0: recall. Yep,
1: do you remember that? Yeah, oh, yeah, okay, and it was a fan magazine, it's um, like a zine, like a zine, yeah. yeah, um, and so whenever, so they would list. Fan, were the, the like in the, the back the, pages. In the back pages. So yeah. I would just submit it to these things, and it didn't cost any money to submit to these film festivals. Like nowadays, you have to pay like 150 dollars to submit your. Well, stuff. you didn't
0: have thousands upon thousands of people submitting things. Right. Not back in the, at least in my experience, back in that time, most people weren't make trying to attempting to make movies because right. they looked like home movies. Right. Right. So. So I. Was so excited with
1: how "Suck 'Em Dry" had turned out that we made two more. That's so there's awesome "Suck 'Em Dry" title. one, now two, you, and three. Now you,
0: I, now I bet you there are. There's a multitude of pornos. I'm sure. Probably. You know what? I don't know. I don't know. I wonder if you don't. If you don't were, Google it. It's probably gonna pop right <laughs> up. Yeah. You know what's gonna show up on my computer,
1: and it's not gonna be my movie. So we'll have to put those up on YouTube, though. be we're great. We're not making money off of them. Not. No Why not? Suck so, 'em dry. That's hilarious. Suck 'em dry. So
0: you made a, a succession of uh, short films. Short films, and, and then and then Michael D. Moore gets back to you and says, "Hey, I want to move on." You made um, *Mark of the Devil* six six six. So how did he respond to that, and what was the reception for that movie? Well, now I have to take a step back because the first movie that I tried to make legitimate for release
1: was called *Havoc*, and it it was this is before Moore Video, so. I hadn't finished Suck Him Dry and we're not going to be able to say that without not, I know, smirking are I we know, No. know um, and I saw there was a guy there was an ad and I think honestly it was in independent video uh-huh. and they were looking for indie movies to put out so I called up this company and said hey I've got a full I've got a movie called Havoc um, would you would you like be interested in putting it out and I explained to them and they said yeah absolutely send it in um, well problem was I hadn't shot it or written it yet so now I had to shoot a movie in a matter of days, mm. and it, it, I, I didn't realize that you can't really stretch a movie out to full length when you've only got, like, a 30-page script. Right. So I, I tried, and it wound up being, like,
0: a 45-minute movie. It was horrible. You could have done the sledgehammer, the I David Pryor know, thing, where just everything's in slow motion for half of the movie. Oh, I could, but it was, we,
1: and we had all original music, and I did it legit, where I filmed everything without music. mm mm-hmm. um, and then you know, I, I had a guy, a friend of mine, put you know, laid a legit score over it—a horrible score, but legit score over sure. it. Sure. It had opening and closing credits, but it looked awful, and it was awful, and it was not a full-length feature. So I went ahead and sent it off to this company, and I never heard back. <laughs> so okay, so. That's the first movie that I tried to make. Is that out there? Is that out no, there anywhere? It's you, sitting
0: in my basement. You still have
1: that it's sitting in my basement. Oh man! And it's always and it's one of those that I'm always thinking I should pull this stuff out and put it onto a DVD at some point and you know like like as extras, like, like a bo- like a
0: bonus disc,
1: right? Yeah. Um, so then, after that fiasco, and suck them dry. I'm gonna say it as many times as possible. <laughs> Let's just keep saying it. Um, then um, we, I went into The Last House on the Left, which then turned into Mark of the Devil 6. And um, I was free to do whatever I wanted um, with Mark of the Devil 666.
0: He didn't give you, like, a plot that you nope. had to follow he or anything? he gave me nothing.
1: And here's what he didn't even give me. What part it was. He just said Mark of the Devil he movie. He said he wanted to make a Mark of the Devil sequel. And I said, okay, well, what part is it? Because I had heard of the original film. The Udo Kier. Right, like, 1970. Yep. Um, so I'd heard of it, but I'd never seen it. And I said, okay, well what, part, well, what part am I making? And he's like, I don't know. <laughs> like, How did he come upon the, the licensing well, rights for here's that? here's the thing. I, to this day, don't know that he did. Oh, I'm sure he didn't. Because it's, you know, it was shot in Europe, I, Europe, I think, right? I don't remember where it was shot. It's a European um, film. Right. Um, he's, it had become public domain. Um, and I or think he believes it was public domain. He believes it was public domain. So he, so his company was putting out the original film and then had it out on VHS for a couple of years. And they were doing really well with it. Um, so he wanted to make a part whatever. And um, I think he thought that because the original film was in public domain, or at least assumed to be, um, that you could make a sequel. To a public domain movie, which I believe is no, not the case. no, you, you can cannot. remake that
0: movie, right? But you cannot. Oh, I didn't know that you could even remake it. No, well, well, that's what's being done with the Night of Living Dead movies. Why there's this multitude of Night of Living Dead remakes? Oh. It's because that name, that movie. As long as you're you're trying to remake that movie that's in the public domain, trying to do a version or spin on that, that's fine. But sequels. That means that, that those rights have to revert to somebody. At, the, at least this is what I was under the understanding, was that you can't make sequels to public domain movies without contacting <laughs> you know, the original rights holders.
1: Okay, that's news to me. I, did, I didn't I I w- know you could even do that. I had
0: heard that. I could be wrong. Oh. I could be talking you know, out of turn here, but that was what I was always under the huh. impression of. Well, I'm sure that Mark of the Devil...
1: Um, through my research I found out that there had been five there were three legitimate Mark of the Devils one two and three Mm -hmm. then parts four and five were put out I believe actually I think it was by Tempe Video (laughs) was it one of
0: those things where they took repurposed movies and retitled them right so it was like a virgin among the living dead or something and then the
1: fifth film that was part four and, uh, and I can't think of what part five was. I actually
0: found them on eBay with part four and part five. You really titled covers. it? Yeah. Because A Virgin title. Among the Living Dead has been out there as A Virgin Among the Living Dead for right. so long. Yeah. So, well, that was
1: considered part four. And then part five was another Spanish. It was like a Spanish movie or something. Interesting. Um, so then I was like, okay, I can't find anything beyond part six or beyond part five. So this looks like it's going to be part six. Why wouldn't you call it 666?
0: Of so course. So I
1: made Mark of the Devil 666. Six, six, and at the time, I'm 20 years old, and I'm thinking in my head, are we really allowed to do this? But. You're getting paid to do I'm getting, it. You're getting paid to do it. Why not? Yeah, so just go for it. So I made it. Um, it was. Uh, filming was fine. Yeah. Um, but the final product was a piece of shit. It was. And, and not so much through my own fault. I think the f- movie itself is watchable. But the what he essentially did was he took my rough cut and laid really bad music over it. The music had nothing to do with what was happening in, in mm-hmm. each individual scene. There was no enhancement of a moment. It was just a stock soundtrack yeah. that he laid on right. there. And they literally, it's like music plays from the opening credits to the to closing. The end.
0: Right. And I, and I know this very well because as you know, we talked about before, we went back and re-edited your next film, Five Dark Souls. Right. And I took those elements and I recut it And I was able to strip away the soundtrack he had for that and lay a new one in there of of like public domain royalty-free music. And I've actually done the same thing for 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 this film, Mark of the Devil. And I have it at home right now. Mm -hmm. And it was easy to do because the left channel was all your raw dialogue. And all the right channel was this horrible stock garbage. That had
1: it wasn't even horror movie music.
0: That was the part that floored me. There was like there was like heavy metal
1: and there's country and it I made mean, no it, sense. Yeah, it was literally just songs that he had picked up from film from music festivals. And it, it obscured
0: festivals. it obscured all the dialogue. So it was just like you're so you're one here's the first knock. You're watching a shot on video film from the early 90s without a real edit, which which felt like an assembly edit to be right. honest. I mean cuz cuz what it was. When you're cutting back and forth between VCRs yeah. to VCRs, yeah. you can't get fine edits. No. Because there's a delay between the moment you press yep. play and stop. The tape, the heads have to stop. Right. You never get... So everything feels slightly loose and right. slightly off. And so you you have that, and then you have now this soundtrack where this music makes no sense in context with what's going on on the screen, which Mark of the Devil 666 is a slasher film. Right. So you have these two things. So in general... It had to be a, a, like when it came out. I'm sure it was a lot more forgiving at that time because most people didn't know about what shot on video was. They right. were still being sold right. as legitimate movies. What well, right. they're legitimate movies, but you know what I mean as Hollywood type right. movies, like professional productions. Right. So what was like? What was the response? Did you get any okay. response yeah. back for? Well,
1: it sold fairly well, believe it or not. So I'm, I'm sure, probably just based on the title. Um, and again, taking a quick step back. There were no, he didn't care what I did. He didn't care if it was like a legitimate, like, spinoff from the original film. He just wanted the title. So, um, so he sold the title. He could right. care, care less right. what was he in it. He didn't care what the content was, who was in it, anything. Um, and so my, I was originally going to, um, make it a sequel. Like, it, like, like Karen Deleuze's character was going to be a descendant of the lead woman, the survivor mm-hmm. of the original film. And then it was going to involve witchcraft a little bit more. Um, we did. I did consider doing a period piece, but I'm like, I'm making this thing for four hundred dollars. Yeah, know, I can't afford. What that are you going to do? So it just kind of evolved into a slasher movie, and which was very Scream-ish. I would like to point out mm-hmm. a full year and a half before Scream ever came out. So, in just in that, it was that the killer was was basically was killing people to mimic horror movies, mm-hmm. other other slasher movies that really existed. Yeah. Um, so the movie comes out, and to sum it up, <laughs> um, first it was awesome that Fangoria actually had it in their. It was the first time it was it was in video in their video section. Yeah, and it was a little you know it was, it was I mean it was probably like an inch long write up about it, but I was like oh my god! But you're in print. My movie is in print in Fangoria magazine. In a magazine you've been reading, I'm sure since At you were a kid. Bible. Yeah, you know so, um, but. Markley Double Six is being rented, or is available for rent, at the video store where I'm working, Galaxy Video in Racine, Wisconsin. This woman had checked it out, not knowing who I was or my involvement, you know, that I was attached to this. But you were working at that video store at the time. I was working at that video store.
0: Because there are scenes in that
1: that movie in that video store, correct? Oh,
0: yeah, there is. You get killed in that video store. I get
1: killed in that video store. Well, for whatever reason, the woman must either she didn't finish the movie or she never didn't put two and two together because the only thing that she said when she came back was, Oh my god, this movie's a piece of shit. <laughs> I,
0: what did you think about I that? I just was like, Oh, <laughs> That's well not because something. you're you're young and you're you're super excited. You you've done this thing, it's an accomplishment. It's sitting it is, there in front of you. But I knew that she was telling the truth.
1: Right. So it's not that it was a shock. It just kind of sucks to hear it in person. Of course it does. You know, so, um, <laughs> but I, I was nervous when people would check it out because I was afraid that that was going to be the response. Because the first time that I watched it, now, and you have to keep in mind, I sent the assembly to Moore, and I didn't have any involvement with it from that point on until I was handed the finished copy back. Yeah. With its box cover, you know, and everything. And, um, and watched it mortified. Like, oh my God, this is my final result. So um, so I knew what the response was going to be. And there weren't a lot of reviews out there. Um, I don't know that it was sent out to a lot of magazines. Well, you didn't review. have
0: the avenues that we have right now in order to have immediate feedback on stuff, you know, and to have crosstalk right. with each other other than Fangoria and Gore Zone and right. Cinema Fantastique and these things. So right. it was just like the only way you would hear back is if you were literally at a convention or you were talking to other horror fans that were at the video store or like you, in your case, you're working at a video store and right. somebody rents it and comes up and talks to you. Right, right. Now, the, the most fun, that, the, one of the happiest
1: things that had happened to me at that time was we then went on, Mark of the Devil 666 did well, so he immediately wanted me to do a sequel to uh, Three and a Meat Hook, which I wrote as Three and a Meat Hook Part 2 but turned into Five Dark Souls.
0: Was this another thing where, where it he was a thought domain, he was...
1: Okay. Yeah, where it was going to be a public domain movie, and I'm like,
0: can you really
1: make part two? And I had to like, hunt down... It took me, Did, like... Had you, had you seen the movie I at that I had not seen Three Animated Hook. So I actually found it at a video store, like, an hour away, mm-hmm. and um, watched it, and I was like, it was watchable. It's okay. You know, but as I was writing the story, I... It went from being, I was going to have it be three killers, or no, it was going to be three teenagers. Um, the story was the same as Five Dark Souls ultimately ended up being. Mm-hmm. But I was just sitting in my room one night as I'm typing away on my little electric typewriter. And I was like, ah, three and a Meat Hook part two, does it, who's going to care?
0: Nobody. You know, nobody's going to care. It's very obscure and 70s. I'm like,
1: and I'm like, but it's about these five killer teenagers. And then at that moment it was like, Five Dark Souls. It's about these five dark souls. Yeah. You know, so that's how that title came to be so we made five dark souls and put it in the same video store where I was working and, um, somehow it had been seen. And, um, I was out in public with Karen DeLue and somebody recognized her. And to see her reaction to being recognized from being in a movie was like the coolest thing. And my mother was there at that at that exact moment. Yeah. Um, so for my mother And Karen To both kind of experience be That recognition of I now have done something And somebody's being Recognized for it for it, it doesn't matter that, it's, that The woman didn't know Who I was sure. It mattered that Karen knew Did she feel proud or, about that? Oh she was very proud She was yeah. kind of like you know the movies were kind of jokes to her sure I mean she took them seriously as an actor Karen. okay Karen. yeah sure sure yeah but she took it seriously while she was as an actress right but she knew what they were yeah you know she, so yeah. like we're making these movies for four or five hundred dollars a piece you know a hundred people are gonna see it maybe right you know so um, but to have my mother there too to, to see that one of my films had actually been seen yeah by somebody that we didn't know that was like this big moment, and I got my very first fan letter ever from a girl named Rachel Grubb, um, who I now communicate with still on Facebook. Oh wow! Um, was about Five Dark Souls. She wrote, hand wrote me a letter in like 1996 or 97. F- somehow figured out my address. I had yellow page, white pages, whatever. Yeah. And uh, so that was the first and she, that was the first fan letter I ever got.
0: That's awesome. Now, it's so, funny that that would be the movie that she was recognized even though the cover of Mark of the Devil is her straddling this Ouija board. That she is so thrilled with now that she's a mother. <laughs> I bet. I bet. And that's, I I, I know, because talking with cats that like this kind of thing and were around at that time and had got the tape, that cover comes up all the time. Does it really? Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> because since we subsequently went back and redid uh, Five Dark Souls, um, mm-hmm. People come to me and talk to me about it, uh-huh. and that always comes up. Like, yeah, man, I had that tape, and man, I have them all. And I'll get pictures of people that have all of your MDM movies that on VHS. Crazy. Still. There was. I only know of one guy who sent me a
1: picture of his collection of all of my movies from MDM. Yeah. That and he had other stuff too, and that and, that, and he he actually I think front faced the Mark of the Devil. Uh, VHS. Yeah. And that was the one that I was like, "What?" That's a great trashy cover. Oh, it is. I love it. She hates it, but I love it. Of course, it. I, she, she hates it. But I think she she's now. She used to be kind of mortified by it, but now I think she kind of gets a kick out of it. Like, because we just I just posted something on Facebook the other day. Um, it was an ad for Five Dark Souls Part Two that I came across. Mm-hmm. But in the bottom corner, part of the ad was that you shows the box cover for Mark of the Devil Six Six Six. And she, and she just responded. She's like, "Oh no, where did I put that Ouija board?" <laughs> so she's kind of. She'll. I think she's. She gets a kick out of it. Yeah. Now, right.
0: Well, know? she's so far removed from it at this point that right. any social media presence that it comes up is fleeting yeah. at best. Right. That's crazy, though, that people actually talk about that cover still. I think people t- talk about because you know. Probably a good five years ago, there was a shot on Video Resurgence mm-hmm. where people, you know, the VHS market started coming back and we all tried dipping our hands in there to, to ca- catch some extra dollars. No, but there was some, somebody sold, and it wasn't me, somebody sold a VHS
1: copy of Five Dark Souls for $150. Wow. That
0: drop drop my jaw. I was like, first of all, that's what the movie was made for. <laughs> and did you, <laughs> you immediately want to start posting all of your, your copies? I did, but I don't have any more anymore. My v, I don't have a VHS player anymore, so I can't burn any copies. Wait 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 wait. So you have this Now, my, my, listeners, my let's step, let's let's step back, listeners. Yes. You walk into Jason's house and one his living room is basically a movie collection. Mm-hmm. You have because you worked at that video store for so many years, you have this huge VHS horror oh, collection. Yeah. I, so you can't watch any of that shit anymore. I can't anymore. watch it because my VCR doesn't
1: work. So I need to just, I need to find a working VHS player and probably hook it up to another TV. It's, I, for some reason, it's not working with the new TV set that we have. Oh, okay. So I need to figure that out because I literally have about 2,000 VHS tapes in my, I call it my Red Room. Yeah. That I would love. And these are movies that are not on DVD. So, and, you know, I tell my other half, like, if I die, there's a lot of money in that room. And he kind of chuckles it off. He's like, yeah, whatever, VHS tapes. I'm like, no, you don't understand the money that people are willing to pay for some of this stuff. I sold a a clamshell box of Driller Killer for, like, 60 bucks, Mm -hmm. you know? And there was another one. It was a Herschel Gordon, maybe Blood Feast or something. That I got up. Was with it my, the old big box? The old big clamshell box. Yeah. With her,
0: with her tongue ripped
1: out and all that shit. Yep. And it sold. I, I it wasn't hundred dollars, but it was close to it. Huh. You know, so I'm like, you have to understand, there, there are these people out there who are these enormous fans, and they want it on VHS. They don't want the DVD. Yeah. You know, there were people when we put Five Dark Souls out on DVD. They were like, they want
0: the VHS. So.
1: I'm it's like, a but gimmick. the DVD version is so much better.
0: Well, <laughs> and now that movie subsequently is up on uh, YouTube on Kings yes. of Horror yep. on their channel. And I tell
1: you to go and watch it, except that I'm not making any money off of it. So that's where our <laughs> conversation has started right before the podcast. So let's talk about that a
0: little bit. <laughs> so, so, YouTube, so here we are. Um, you, you made this uh, succession. After that, you obviously you made uh, two more Five Dark Souls mm-hmm. movies. Parts 2 and 3. Parts 2 and 3. I made Part 2 in 98 and I made Part
1: 3 in 2003. Part 3 has never come out. So we've never seen Part 3. I never finished it. We shot about 75% of the movie and one thing led to another and it just didn't get done. Yeah. And I always said, I'll go back next year. Next summer I'll regather everybody. Well... I'm going to tell you right now, this is 15 years later and people aren't going to look the same. No. Most of them are moms and dads now so they have no interest in coming to, coming to going somewhere to spend a Saturday afternoon shooting scenes with my... I'd have to dig out my old VHS camcorder to yeah. fit it so that it looked the same. Right. You know? So, um, and then, in between those movies, I made Julia Wept, which was in 2000, which was a short. It was 30 minutes long and that is what I call the movie that actually got me Professionally hired. More video did a lot for me in the sense of I learned how to make movies, but yeah. I call that my film school. Yeah. Um, it got out. People saw them, but um, when I made Julia Wept, that's what opened the door to something to scream about, which was a documentary that I made and I shot it in '02 and it came out and we released it on in on right around Christmas in '03. We did theatrical screenings and then it hit DVD in '04, and that was the movie that really got my name into magazines and uh, got airplay it was on Showtime for several years and um, we had a huge signing event at the Virgin Mega store in West Hollywood and they had shelves of it was just I was I walked in
0: the door and it was shelves of something to scream about front-faced that's awesome now how did and, you come in to, to getting involved in this project because at that time you you eventually moved to LA I did so I moved to LA in '98. Um,
1: and I was doing movies. I, I over the years, Brink Stevens, who was like the best scream queen, love her so much, <laughs> um, got introduced me to J.R. Bookwalter, who in turn introduced me to David Dakota. J.R. Bookwalter is known for The Dead Next Door. David Dakota is best known for like um, Sorority, Sorority Babes. Babes and The Slimeball Bola Rama and Nightmare Sisters, Creepazoids, Creepazoids, The Brotherhood, um, so uh, Puppet Master Three. Mm-hmm. So I started working for Dave on his movies, my very first movie. He had me do publicity on Voodoo Academy, and then um, my first on-set work was Ancient Evil, um, Scream of the Mummy, followed by The Brotherhood 1 and 2, and then we did uh, Final Stab, and then we did The Frightening.
0: Now, were you mostly uh, talent, or were you behind no, the scenes? I was, behind it, was I was an
1: assistant director and production coordinator okay. on those movies, so I was the guy that ran the show behind the scenes. Um uh, Ancient Evil was kind of my learning where, playground where I was with the, I was most, mostly with the actors kind of getting to make sure that they were in makeup and hair and wardrobe running lines with them etc The Brotherhood I busted my chops because it was a hard shoot it was a good shoot but it was a hard shoot and several people weren't pulling their weight and I ended up picking up the pieces and because of that Dave, I think Dave got, I earned a lot of Dave's respect sure so I went on to do these additional movies with him Well, at that
0: time, he was making, you know, quick movies, and to have somebody in his corner that he didn't have to babysit, I'm sure, was tremendous. Right, and he
1: tended to rehire the crew, and to this day, I think he still rehires a lot of the same crew, um, because they know the pace that he works at, which Mm -hmm. is, like, super fast. Mm -hmm. He makes movies in, like, two days now. Oh, yeah. So, towards the end of my working with Dave, I realized that um, now I'm working on movie sets, and I'm seeing my name in the end credits, which is, like, when I saw my name... In the end credits on Ancient Evil, that was the moment that was that moment to when I was 15 years old, sitting in my room satisfied watching the end credits for Friday the 13th I was like, this is a 35 millimeter movie shot in anim- 30- anamorphic yeah so it's a good looking movie it's professionally done, and there goes my name up that professional film scroll you know so that was the defining moment for me um, but after I'd done a couple movies with Dave, I was like, I feel like I'm going to get stuck always being the assistant director or the production coordinator. Instead of being able
0: to do your To thing. be the director, yeah. right?
1: Because I would watch these movies and I would not see myself in it. You know, short of my name in the end credits, I'm like, what in these movies is me? Is, is speaking right. from you. You know, nobody knows that I was involved in this. My, you know, I see my name in the end credits. Maybe my friends see my name, but nobody's going to notice my name. You know, right.
0: halfway down the scroll. Right, except for you, because you're actually me. looking for right. it.
1: So um, that's why I went out and I shot Julia Wept, and, which was a short, a half hour short, and its specific intent was not film festivals. I wanted to shoot a movie that I could send to other producers to show that I had talent as a director. Sure. And I got Brink to work on it for super cheap. Basically we bartered I paid her a tiny bit of money But I then supplied her with a multitude of VHS copies That she could sell for whatever price at conventions sure. And she actually made more money on it than I did <laughs> <laughs> But its purpose was to act as a visual resume Yeah And and it worked I, started, I got other jobs And then J.R. Bookwalter watched Specifically because of Julia Webb J.R. Bookwalter funded something to scream about Um which is included on the DVD for something Julia Wept. Julia Wept is included on the DVD. Right. For Something to Scream About. So, um, Something to Scream About had come about as a result of... I was working at Femme Fatales. Oh, I had moved back to LA, from Los Angeles to Chicago. I have to throw that in there. Okay. 9-11 happened. I was missing my family. And at the exact same time, a job offer came in from Femme Fatales, which I had started writing for a couple years earlier. Mm-hmm. So... Um, I got this editor position and we at Femme Fatals were originally gonna it was my idea was to make start making video magazines um, of these Scream Queens, like kind of they were gonna be sexier. They were gonna be like these sexy Scream Queen videos and uh, these little mini documentaries and we were gonna do four or five of them.
0: Kind of like the, the Playboy Centerfold type of,
1: deals. Right. So we yeah. were gonna and we were gonna call it Femme Fatals Presents and we were gonna join with JR and it was gonna be called he had made shock cinema. So it was, a, he had made four shock cinema documentaries. Mm-hmm. So we were going to, at one point, join with him. and It was going to be called Femme fatals Presents Shock Cinema Volumes. I think it was going to be like volumes five, six, and seven. Um, Femme Fatale's ended up getting bought out um, in 02 as this was kind of just beginning in the beginning stages of the documentary. And um, so I was Ousted because they fired the entire staff. Oh, wow. And moved the magazine out to LA, ironically, where <laughs> I just moved from. <laughs> um, and so JR said, well, let's keep going with it. We'll just call it something else. It doesn't have to be a Shock Cinema video, or sh- it doesn't have to be Femme Fatals related. You know, there were no contracts. It was just me and JR really doing this. It was just that the owner of, the then owner of Femme Fatales had said, sure, why not? You know, so, um, so JR put up the money. And I gathered all of the B-, the B movie actresses that I had come to know personally through the interviews that I had done with them for Femme Fatales, which was, you know, Judith O'Day and Julie Strain and Brink Stevens and Felissa Rose from Sleepaway Camp and um, Denise Duff from Subspecies and Debbie Rishon and. You know, all, all the big girls from, from that era. era. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I even mingled in then some from the Slumber Party Massacre movies like Deborah DeLiso. Deborah DeLiso. Deborah DeLiso from Debra. Slumber Party Massacre. And so I was getting all of these girls to come in and we had Ariana Albright who had done a bunch of Tempe movies. Right.
0: Bloodletting. And, and
1: Lilith Stabs, yep. who was kind of starting to do a bunch of stuff right in that time. She was kind of rising in the, in the, the really independent market, mm-hmm. you know, so, um, and we just shot it, um. In this, and I came up with the title. That is one thing that I will say I'm good at is coming up with movie titles. <laughs> so, so I, I came up with something to scream about. Uh Jr. sold it to Showtime, and it did really, really well. That's the most money I've ever made on a, one of my movies, because I actually got paid for it. Because mm-hmm. so many of my movies, I don't get paid back for.
0: Well, because and, there aren't they, they're passion projects that you you are kind of scrounging to get money together right. in general just to produce these things. Right. And I often don't give myself a paycheck. So I'll put all the
1: money towards the crew and the cast yeah. with the assumption that I'm going to make it on the back make end. Make it on the back end and then the distributors don't pay. <laughs> so something to scream about I got a nice fat check for it and um, and it aired for several years. It yeah. ran for mm-hmm. quite a few years I think until from like 04 to o seven. Um I was getting covered. I was getting noticed in magazines. So because of the success of something to scream about, um, both not just financially but critically, it was the first time in my career that I was like, people are saying really nice things about me, and they're saying really nice things about the movie. Mm-hmm. You know, and it was showing up in movie guides and was getting like three stars, four stars, and so it was this really proud project. Um, because of that success, I found the financing for October Moon, which was um, something that I've been trying to do since 1998, which was make a specifically gay-themed horror film. Because nobody had really done that. There was a movie in 1972 called Sometimes That Martha Does Dreadful Things. Mm-hmm. And I don't know... but it's And it wasn't a gay movie in the sense of... This is a gay horror movie. The movie was about a murderous gay couple. So... I don't know if it qualifies as a gay horror movie because the intended audience wasn't
0: gay. Wasn't specifically no. geared
1: that way. It was actually supposed to scare you of the gay people. Right. So that's why I think October Moon is the first legitimate gay horror film. Now, some might argue, Hellbent, which is which was a gay slasher film that came out at the exact same time. Right. Um, they shot simultaneously. But Hellbent got released like a Before. month, like a month earlier. Sure, sure. So,
0: I'm I'm glad we brought we we got to October Moon because that's kind of what I wanted to bring you on here tonight, for or today I should say. I say tonight because usually I record these things and it's mm. nighttime, but today um, is because we're getting to the 10th anniversary of October Moon, yes. and you're going to be re-releasing this this yes. movie. And, um, so we have October moon, which hopefully, do you know when people are going to be able to check out this new version of it? November. We were aiming for October, but we didn't
1: get the art in time. Mm-hmm. So, um, we missed the, we missed the, the, the date. Cause we have to, you have to do it like X number of months in it, like six months in advance or something with the distributor. So it's going to be going out through a company called VPD. I think it's VPD. Um, it's still being released by Tempe, mm-hmm. but they're going through a new distributor. Who is in... I see it everywhere, all these different magazines. So, it's out there. Yeah. Um, and it should be... So, now it looks like it'll be the, the very beginning of November is my expectation. So, we're still within the 10-year anniversary frame. Um, now, this is the 10th year on DVD because the movie was released in 05, theatrically.
0: Um, and when you say theatrically, did you have a limited release or was it just limited. like a like a local release? We
1: It showed throughout Wisconsin... We got a screening in Chicago, we screened it, I believe it screened out west. Um, It was not a lot of theaters, it was like five or six theaters, so it was extremely limited. And then we also, at the same time, we were screening it in bars, Mm -hmm. so we were going to all different gay bars, and we were screening on college campuses. Um, And it was doing really well. Mm -hmm. We got a really great reaction to it. So that was, until Screaming in High Heels came along, October Moon was
0: actually my proudest accomplishment, because it got so many positive reviews. Right. Did you did you feel compelled as an openly gay man to want to to start telling stories like this because there's really nothing at least at that time now it's a much more open market right um, not just in uh, temperance wise but just like from content wise there's much more of this type of uh, right. content out there but at that time there really was nothing. there was nothing out Absolutely. there did you feel like you wanted to see that kind of yes. things. It was
1: something that I wanted to see. And again, October moon was back to 1998 when I was thinking to myself, there isn't anything for me, right? Everything is boobies and yeah. you know, and it's, and, and there's, there's no, there's no gay horror for sure. Um, David Dakota in the late 90s was kind of toying with homoeroticism in his movies. Right. Like The Brotherhood. But it was more innuendo than it right. was anything. They were, those were still being sold as movies for girls. So it was guys in their underwear, but they weren't kissing. There was nothing romantic between the guys. It was kind of implied sure. yeah, that maybe they could kiss, but it never happened on screen. Mm-hmm. So it was just guys walking around in their underwear and sexy boys. But again... He, while he was promoting it in the gay market, it was still all of his movies at that time were being promoted as movies for girls. You sell more copies to the straight audience. Sure. So I was very determined to make a gay horror movie because it was something that there was there was nothing there for me, and I was like, this has got to be a market that nobody's tapped into, and I met with Charlie Band at Full Moon. about that, and he never took it anywhere.
0: He he didn't seem... He doesn't seem like the the kind yeah. of person that would be interested. Yeah, in he that doesn't stuff. want to see Dick Wiggle on screen. Of course. And, and he likes girls, you know. So. Of course. But, um, so my thought was, I'm like, this could
1: be huge. Nobody has done this before.
0: So did you pitch this to JR?
1: I pitched it to JR, And yes. what was his reaction to absolutely. this? Absolutely. He was like, absolutely, I totally... He, JR was on board 100%. He got it instantly. So, but it was my job to go out and find the money for it. So... Um, Due to the success of Something to Scream About, I almost immediately found investors once Something to Scream About came. So I went back, I re I re-toyed the script, because originally October Moon was more of a slasher movie.
0: So And now in its current form, it's more of like a fatal attraction. Fatal attraction, lo- like yeah. a, a love triangle that goes really, really bad. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and it is also
1: largely a true story. It was based on my father's experience mm. of coming out of the closet.
0: So do you want to quick give a synopsis as to what October Moon is?
1: October Moon is there's a young man who is engaged to be married and he has a very strict Catholic mother and he gets hired at this new job, meets his boss, who's very attractive and um, which and it, he kind of slowly throughout the course of the story begins to realize that he himself is gay. Yeah. And the boss is gay and has a partner. So story A is the coming out process of this young gentleman who was very confused and conflicted because he's engaged to this girl and he's got this mother who he knows is not going to approve and, and the B story was the already gay man and his partner were played by Jeff Dylan Graham and Sean Lambrecht. and the the confused guy is played by Jared Howard um, so you've got their they're having struggles so I was trying to portray a positive gay character just a normal a couple. normal everyday couple they weren't drag queens they weren't they stereotypical no, flamboyant. flamboyant they were just a couple that were going through a hard time mm-hmm. the it was an older gentleman and when i say older i mean 30 right um who is partnered with a 23 about to be 23 year old and the 23 year old wants to be out and partying and making out with other guys and living a wild life and the 30 year old is like I'm kind of calming down down for that you know so it was their conflict so there's two separate stories going on and those two stories eventually come and meet in the middle and um, as a result when when the young gentleman who is confused finally is like this is what I am I am gay all hell breaks loose his life literally disintegrates Um, and it becomes and I'm not going to go any further than that but it becomes very messy and very dangerous from that point on for everybody involved including the straight characters and I wanted to make sure that it was a movie that didn't have dick wiggling all over it. I right. wanted straight people to be able to watch this movie and say okay, so gay people are kind of like us.
0: You was, know? It, was it a worry because I, I think a lot of the fear with, with certain straight people is, is that uh, the gay culture pushes itself too far in their faces. Yeah. Yes,
1: and I wanted, and it's funny because so many people say to me, um, or I'm not it to my face, but have said online um, that some of the characters and the conversations are very stereotypical. And it's like, funny because those are actual conversations. I didn't make those conversations up. Those are the conversations that I was hearing every day in my life. So maybe they are stereotypical, but it's what y'all were saying. Right. So it was both the straight people's view, negative view of the gay culture. And the way that the gay culture kind of treated itself. So mm-hmm. it's a commentary on both both sides of the fence, you know. So the only negative thing that I other that I got for October Moon was it came out at the exact same time that Brokeback Mountain came out, mm-hmm. and so everybody,
0: which was, it, was a much more
1: in-your-face kind of movie, and it was enormously huge. Yeah, it was it was like a cultural phenomenon. Yeah, and so people were like, had. So many straight, straight America was going to see Brokeback Mountain. So when October Moon came out, they were expecting, I think, kind of the same thing. And here it is, this little tiny indie movie that was made for fourteen thousand dollars. Did anybody call it Brokeback Horror? Uh yes. That I can't remember. The, my favorite one was October. They should make it. They said they should make a a straight porn version of it called October Poon. Oh Jesus! <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I'm like, I still need to make a movie called October Poon. <laughs> no, so, suck me dry. Suck, me, suck them dry, suck on them October, dry. Sorry, during the October Poon. <laughs> so, uh, so that was the only negative. The only negatives that I really heard from it were that some people felt that some of the conversations were too stereotypical. Again, based on actual conversations. Right, right. And that it was so low budget. They wanted something. They were expecting it to be a little more slicker. Slick. Yeah, yeah, sure. And it's like...
0: Which, which to say that is is for a shot on video film, which it is. It's still a widescreen. It was no. is it now the sequel? The sequel is widescreen. Oh, that's screen. right. November Sun. The sequel is, but it still it looks professional. Yeah. It doesn't look cheap. No. The acting, for the most part, it's is good. solid. Right. Yeah. And it's it's done. It, it's not tongue in cheek. It's not winking at the camera. It's done like a straight. Right. I, I hate to say straight film, but you know what right. I mean, oh, yeah. like a regular film. Absolutely,
1: yes. And that's, was, that was my aggravation with it, was if you're going to base this movie entirely on the, on the opening credits, and you, if you start watching the opening credits and you see that it's a low-budget movie, that you're not going to give it a chance, because it's a good movie. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to—I I will pat myself on the back a little bit for it, because here it is 10 years later, and I still get at least one fan letter, usually through Facebook, a month. Minimum, monthly. This is a 10-year-old movie. Yeah. You know, I don't get anything for Mark of the Devil 6XX. I don't get anything for something to scream about anymore. Well,
0: unfortunately, though, well, something to scream about still out there, but those other movies haven't really been re-released. No, they're,
1: but, but they're forgotten.
0: Right. You know, they're
1: forgotten. I get stuff for Five Dark Souls every once in a really long time. But October Moon, minimum of one new person a month, contacts me about it. Just saying that they'd just seen it somewhere on YouTube or rented it or mm-hmm. wherever um, and so that's so that that it has I don't know that legacy is the right word but that it's it has impact it has had it had an impact and yeah. the, the fan letters that I got at the time of its release one in particular came from a man in Texas who said this is one of the most important movies I've ever seen in my entire life you don't know how much this has affected me and I'm thinking about coming out to my family because of it he was a closeted man. Yeah. So to be getting those kinds of letters back then and to still be getting praise for it today from strangers yeah. means that I did something good. So if you're going to turn your back on it during the opening credits where you haven't even let the dialogue begin because you're like, oops, low budget, yep. not interested, then you're missing out. And that's not to say that you're going to love it. Because there's a lot of people who hate it. There's a lot of people who hate it. You know, they're like, "What a piece of shit." Yeah. You know, uh, bad acting, stupid story. Why do you have to make a movie? This was the one I heard all the time. Why do gay people have to have horror movies?
0: Why do straight people have to have horror movies? Yeah.
1: But I heard it all the time, and I heard it even more when part two came out. I was standing in a convention in Chicago. People didn't know, who, like, didn't know who I was. I because I wasn't at my table. I was walking around and I was putting flyers out for October Moon 2, November Sun. And right after I'd walked away from the table, there was had been a line, I think there were a line of people to go see Robert England was signing. Yeah. And so there was, was a table of Elm Street fans. And this girl looked at the flyer and said, ugh, why do gays have to have their own movies now? Do they really need them? I'm like, bitch, I'm standing right here. You know, like... But that was that's the mentality that I was kind of up against, and that was why I felt you had to do this. I had to do it. Yeah, and and again, October Moon one and two are not meant
0: solely for gay people. I don't think so at all. I think they're very universal stories, and if you switched out the characters, this is what's intrinsic to it. You switch out the characters' orientations, Mm -hmm. it's still. It's a story about people right. and relationships and right. dealing with hardships and how to be yourself mm-hmm. and be genuine. And they're, they're important films. Yeah. Now, um, in light of all of the shit that's gone down in the last couple of weeks, you know, we had this huge mass shooting at that gay club down in, in Florida. People, you know, we've come a long way as a country, mm-hmm. I think. Right. Now we finally have universal gay marriage across the board. But there's still an inherent prejudice. Yeah.
1: Well, and this is it, something interesting that somebody just that somebody pointed out this past week as a result of on Facebook. Um, which is when France was attacked, yeah. Would you say 80% of people on Facebook made their um yeah. their cover photo, they put on the the, the France flag. Yeah. Um, Sandy Hook. You know, every time each of these things happens, people put the image over their over their cover photo right on Facebook not very many people have put the gay flag over their Facebook over on their Facebook page and that I think says something because it's still we're still considered lesser than yep. you know you um, know there are so and now you even see people these ministers and the holy preachers that have actually said on camera they should have taken out more of them so we're not you know, we're not yes, past it, man. We're not past it. We've not got a all. long way to go. Yes, our rights are, are, we're becoming more equal legally. Doesn't mean we're becoming more, more equal socially.
0: I think we're still a few
1: generations out. Yeah. Yes. I would agree. So, yes, there will be an October Moon 3.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the underlying current. Yes, shirt. there will.
1: And it's funny because I, I've had many people say to me, um, oh, it's okay to be gay now. Nobody cares anymore that people no. are gay. So not true. Where are they living? Right. They're well, they're, but the thing is that they're living within, like, with even within my own family. People have said it to me. Well, you, you, you and Mike have been together for ten years, and look, nobody bothers you guys. And I'm like, um, let me tell you how I feel when I'm walking down the street, or if exactly. I'm in a restaurant, or you know, I can't hold his hand walking down the street in Racine, Wisconsin. I'll get my ass kicked. Yeah. You know. Um. So it's we, we do have a very long way to go, and I, I don't expect society to. Be like, okay, we're all cool with you. No. But this incident in Orlando, I certainly hope, has opened people's eyes more to, really, is that all we're worth? Yep. You know? And I'm also very sad that um, these vigils are taking place all over. And in Racine, we had a vigil um, at the beach. And about 100 people showed up for this vigil for Orlando. And out of those 100 people, one drag queen
0: showed up. One. Let me guess. It was a huge deal. It was a huge deal. On the front of... Biggest picture in the newspaper. Oh, of course.
1: Front page of the newspaper the next day. There were um, several ch- several news stations record, uh, filming this. So on the nightly, on the 10 o'clock news, who did they show? You know, and it's like, I'm not knocking the drag queen. I'm knocking the media. It's the coverage and the perception. Right, because it's more entertaining... Of course. It sells to dangle are, to, da- to yep. dangle the look at this freak, yep, you know, to the general public than to show the 99 other people that were there who are just, just everyday people. people. And again, I'm not knocking this drag queen. That's not my Absolutely not. I'm knocking the media's portrayal because you just did you're asking for it to happen again. Yep. This this very picture in the this newspaper. Is the, this is the is straight why, man fear right,
0: right here. Right. Is this. And this is why that man walked into that club. Yep. Which has come out shocker mm-hmm. that he was a closeted gay man. They think. They assume. There's there's an assumption, it's not proven. But it's but yeah,
1: and there's a lot of and there's a lot of self hatred within the gay culture. So and that's what October Moon is. That's why October Moon ends the way that it ends. Mm-hmm. Because of self loathing.
0: Mm-hmm. within the gay culture. That's why it's an important film, Jason. Right. Yeah. That's why it's resonant, so, and it, here we are celebrating its 10th, 10th anniversary. Forgotten so by it. So, <laughs> ending on that. Don't watch we- it on YouTube. Pay for it, please. I need some money. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it can be seen, but yeah, definitely check it out. We'll, I'll be promoting it as we're nearing when it finally mm-hmm. comes out, but uh, that's why I wanted to bring you on today was for that movie, and I think it's important... N- not only as as a nation and as a culture but as a horror fans to recognize that it's important for these kind of stories to be told right because that's what filmmaking is it's like and I don't just tell gay
1: stories so I and this was the thing that had happened right after October moon 2 came out I suddenly was the gay horror the the, the gay horror filmmaker of course which Okay, I've been re- at least somebody's talking about me. Yeah, yeah, you know, you're getting recognized. getting recognized. But then it was the only thing that I did.
0: Yeah. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure October Moon is like the seventh or eighth movie that I've made. But you know, that's you know? everybody gets pigeonholed into something eventually. Right. That's, right. It's just easier to sell yeah. yourself as a label than it is right. as just a filmmaker. Because everyone's filmmakers right. now. Yeah. You know? So, um, but I'm a storyteller.
1: And even off camera, off script, when I'm with my family and when I'm out having drinks with my friends, I'm a storyteller. That's what I do. It's in my nature. I can't, tell, I can't help it. And that's why I'm also a kindergarten teacher. <laughs> 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 the, the irony of teaching letter people by day and murdering people at night, you know. <laughs> on, on film. On let's film. let's, let's I'm please filmed. designate that. But I love telling stories. And that's why I'm a good teacher. Because I don't just dictate information to my students. I tell them. It's all, it's all told in story format. I love sharing information. I love, whether it's history or if it's fiction, I just love sharing my thoughts and, and informing people and bringing them into my world and mm-hmm. the things that go through my head. And it is not always gay-centered. Right. You know? So, um, it's just two movies that I made, and I'm very proud. I'm very proud it should of those be. movies. So, um... Yeah, so I I hope people will give that particular one a chance. And, you know, and, and I and I did go for a short time making movies that did not have gay characters. Or I shouldn't say that didn't have gay characters, that were not gay-centric. I made Shy of Normal, which was a comedy. Mm-hmm. I made, then I made several documentaries. I did Sleepless Nights about the Slumber Party Massacre films. And I did Screaming in High Heels, you know, which was about... Brink Stevens Linnea Quigley and Michelle Bauer and then um, I made Help Me Out Here Shy of no, or not Shy of no, um Safe Inside Safe Inside which is going to be coming out at the end of the year which is my understanding we've been saying that for five years we've been years, saying that so. for five years four years
0: four years it four, feels like four, five it's years. almost five
1: it's going to be five years next year. it's four years this month yeah, actually man that's crazy not, yeah June, I think we started filming on June 21st Yes. yes of 2012 yes and the only reason the movie hasn't come out is because we did some CGI that took some time. I ran out of money. Yep. So then you start paying out of pocket because we yeah. went through all the investment money. Yeah. So that's the other angle of being an independent filmmaker here. It's like you get money, but... It goes quick. It goes very quick. Very fast. And then you got to start get taking on extra jobs and, yep. you know, and, and hope at the end that it's a good movie that people are going to talk about 10 years later.
0: Which October Moon is So Jason We'll come back And we'll do this again And maybe get into Some of this other stuff Some other time But uh, thanks for coming on Thank you And, And
1: by the way I also had a book That just came out A couple months ago Called Basements You can go on Amazon And I'm totally Being a whore right now
0: Please this is the section it. of the show where we can be a whore. I'd actually right. like you to tell the listeners where they can get some of these films and where they can find your writing and stuff like um,
1: that. Well, so I have two books, which is Assault of the Killer Bees and uh, Basements. Assault of the Killer Bees is interviews with 20 cult film actresses, so it's nonfiction. And Basements is brand new, and that just came out um, this past spring. And uh, is an, it was my first short. It's very short. It's only 72 pages long. Um, But it's short fiction, very expensive, but it's on Amazon. Mm -hmm. You can get it, um, both of those. And then you can get any of my DVDs are available through Amazon. Um, If you want them cheaper, you can go directly to TempeVideo.com. And they usually have really good deals. And and, um, I'm actually going to ask people to not purchase Screaming in High Heels because I don't get paid for it. I have not received any money for that film from Breaking Glass.
0: So please... Don't purchase it. (laughs) And that'll be a story for another time, folks. So, Jason, thanks for coming on. Thank you very much, Derek. You can find Astro Radio Z on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, YouTube, and anywhere that podcasts are found. Please subscribe, share, rate, and review. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and email us questions, concerns, or just general chatter at astroradiozpodcast at gmail.com. Coming from me, Derek Carey, thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.